Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley, BA, MA, all-round awesome guy. And this is When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Hopefully, if this is your first time listening, you'll stick around. And if you've never listened to this podcast before, or if you have and you're just jumping in on this episode to see how Zach Twomley is doing these days, I would really encourage you to listen to the previous episodes because this is the fifth episode on the Second Anglo-Dutch War and why on earth would you start the narrative now? That's just weird, okay? So I'm not going to tell you much about what happened before this episode because there is a good two hours of content for your ears to feast upon. So go and listen to that, and then we can talk. If you're joining me once again, then thanks very much for listening, guys. I really appreciate your continued support, and thanks for the donations to all of you that have been coming through. They are so, so appreciated. I would like to remind you guys, before you throw your hands up in the air and sigh, that this is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast. Brought to you every Monday for the moment by Zach Twomley. Free of charge. Free of charge. All I ask is that you remember to be fit. Because by being fit, you can support my baby and keep me ticking over through the long winter months. What is be fit? Well, be is for blog. Dodiofpodcast.blogspot.ie where you can check out photos, information about me and all that kind of stuff. If you want more information or background details about the episodes I do on the podcast or specials or anything like that, that's the place to go. Ease for email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com if you want to contact me directly and email me like people used to do before technology changed and now everything is so complicated. F is for Facebook. The Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, is nearly at 2,000 likes, guys, and if you haven't liked us already... You're missing out because I've got a penchant for sharing really funny, hilarious historical photos and memes. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, then come along and join us 2,000 crazy other people. Can you believe there's 2,000 people in the world just like you? I couldn't believe it, but in fact, there is. It'll also help you keep up to date with when the podcast is released, as well as any other announcements I might have about the podcasting schedule. So it's always good to check us out there. When Diplomacy Fails podcast on Facebook. I is for iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. iTunes is probably the biggest podcatcher in the world. And though it has its flaws, it's a great place to go if you want to find out what other people think about When Diplomacy Fails as well. While you're there, in fact, you can add to the voices in support or against my podcast by leaving a review or rating this podcast. Everything helps, and the more we do this the more well-known we'll become and hopefully the more downloads we'll get. So everything leads to everything else and it's a great way to show your love. T is for tell anything because we're not fussy. Go outside and tell someone right now about this podcast. You won't regret it, I won't regret it, and we'll all live historically ever after. Thank you guys, I'm sorry to bother you with BFIT all the time, but it is a great way to support this podcast. One final thing that I can't add into BFIT because it wouldn't really work, although I'm open to suggestions, When Diplomacy Fails podcast has a YouTube channel as well. At the moment there's only two videos there, Five Times Diplomacy Has Failed in History and Five Forgotten Facts About the Second World War. 
Give them a look as well if you're interested. They take a long time to make, but it's definitely an avenue I want to go into in the future. Okay, so with all that out of the way, I really hope I haven't scared you guys off, and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Thanks, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 5 of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. In the last episode, we viewed the situation in Europe through the lens of Charles's Portuguese marriage. In this episode, we will examine the complicated web of diplomacy Charles II of Britain sought to spin before the war with the Dutch became a reality. It was quite a body of work, all in all, with lies, intrigue and secrets aplenty, as Charles instructed his diplomats to prepare the ground for British diplomatic supremacy in any future entanglements Britain may be forced to encounter. As an episode, it fills in well the gaps of the era, and how the previous wars shaped the status quo of Europe. Before we jump right into it, I should mention that our plan for this war has somewhat changed. You probably really haven't noticed it, only the most eagle-eyed listeners will have, Recently, while reviewing the scripts and my sources for this war, I decided to bump this up from 10 to 12 episodes. It means that when we get up to the high numbers of this podcast, the numbering system will look a bit awkward, and as you know, as a profound sufferer of OCD tendencies, that will really grind my gears, but I was trying to weigh up the pros and cons of it, and I thought to myself, what's more important? Giving you guys all of the information and a property digestible format where you can actually take in everything or cramming everything into 10 episodes and hoping for the best just because I said I would. And I went for the former and I don't think that any of us will regret that decision. So we've got a lot ahead of us today guys but as an episode I think you'll agree that this goes back to the roots of Zach Twomley and When Diplomacy Fails. We've had a few background episodes to get us to this point. Please listen to them if you haven't already, unless you're one of those weirdos that jumps in at episode 5. But if you've been wondering all this time when I'm going to get to the juicy stuff, and if the last episode wasn't juicy enough for you, this is where it all goes down. So, thanks for sticking around to this point. I will now take you to February 1660, where a significant ruler has just passed away. That men should kill one another for want of something else to do, which is the case of all volunteers in war, seems to be so horrible to humanity that there needs no divinity to control it. Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, 1663. At only 37 years old, Charles X of Sweden had arguably surpassed the efforts of his uncle, Gustavus Adolphus, through his incredible feats of conquest, invading Poland and shattering Polish prestige, and overawing Denmark with an astounding invasion across its islands thereafter. By the end of such feats, which had transformed the status quo of Europe and raised many an eyebrow, the unfortunate elephant in the room was that Sweden couldn't go on like this forever. Though its victories had been mighty and its power was now undeniable, there were chronic problems at home that needed to be addressed. Sweden was millions more in debt every year, and ever since the decision had been made to sell off a load of profitable crown lands in a short-sighted attempt to gain emergency funds, the Swedish state had been plagued by a lack of revenues. 
the need to solve these problems motivated Charles to meet with the nobles and persuade them to get the crown lands back, lands in which deep silver and copper mines, critical forestry and large farms resided. While in the process of arranging such desperate domestic reform, in 1655 Charles X had been drawn to make war on Poland as it collapsed under the weight of a Russian invasion and a Cossack revolt. These were the circumstances that led to awesome Swedish victories by the end of that year, but before long the national resistance of the Poles proved too much, and the incitement of the new Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, to make Denmark declare war on its old enemy brought the deluges closer to home. Charles then shattered Denmark's ambitions and forced a harsh peace, only to break it when he felt the Danes were holding back from providing what Sweden was entitled to. A capture of Copenhagen in 1658 was in part halted by a coalition of states, most notably the Dutch during the Battle of the Sound that year, in a bid to prevent Sweden from grabbing everything in the Baltic and amassing too much power for itself. Faced with the conundrum of numerous enemies, Charles settled into the winter of late 1659 with plans to turn it around, even though his state was in the red and his council were desperate for peace. Only the death of this martial king in mid-February 1660, from complications arising out of pneumonia, enabled the Swedes, now ensconced in yet another regency to prepare Charles XI for the throne, to make peace. As if waking from a wild party to a massive hangover, the new regency in Sweden now had to take stock of the situation in Europe. There was a new young king in France, Spain was in decline, the Holy Roman Empire was spitting out notable states in Brandenburg, Prussia, Bavaria and what would become Austria, where a new, more active Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, now reigned. The Dutch Republic had learned its lessons from the disastrous war against the British Commonwealth a few years before, while the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth remained intact, despite its depletions and desperations during its war with Sweden. Denmark was effectively eliminated as a great power for good, and as a threat to Sweden, while the Swedish state now had to devise a means by which it could hold on to what it had acquired over the last war, and build upon its reputation for military brilliance and prestige. Perhaps most notable of all to the Swedish regency, Britain was soon to welcome back its monarchy under Charles II. The end of the Protectorate and the beginning of Charles's reign represented the return to an old era for Britain, and perhaps signalled that London would not stay outside of either Baltic or European conflicts, as she had done before. In the previous years, the Dutch had stepped in to prevent the Baltic balance of power from going too far towards one power. Would the British now seek to also fill this role? The Regency in Stockholm would certainly have been a little miffed to note that one of the first acts Charles made in the diplomatic sphere was not to approach them for military aid or plans of alliance, but to offer these same items to the power that Sweden had so recently reduced. Denmark. Charles II's pledging of a defensive alliance to Denmark and his commitment to include the Danes in much of Britain's diplomacy is a forgotten aspect of his early reign. In Henry L. Schoolcraft's brilliant article looking at England and Denmark's relations up to the end of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, a common theme emerges of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. What Charles hoped to achieve by pairing his state with the recently reduced Danes was essentially to create a kind of commercial coalition against the Dutch, more specifically the Dutch West India Company, which operated in the Caribbean and West Indies, largely with ease. Years of turmoil in Britain had enabled the Dutch to surge ahead in the region, but Britain's advantage in this regard was found in the Navigation Act, which required that trade with Britain or its colonies be done in British ships only. This meant that the British had the monopoly on trade with its own colonies, which in turn meant that effectively only the British could trade slaves to its colonies, which even more in turn meant that slave trading off the African coast and the resultant triangle of trade between Britain, its colonies and Africa 
became super uber important. This was echoed by Schoolcraft when he noted that It was not until the Restoration, when the Navigation Act gave Englishmen a monopoly of the slave trade with the American colonies, that the African trade was taken seriously in hand. The sudden seriousness of this trade triangle and the realisation that a lot of money was potentially riding on it led to great tensions between the British and Dutch when the latter defended its hard-earned right to have a monopoly on slave trading in West Africa. Christian IV of Denmark had died in 1648 and his son succeeded him as Frederick III of Denmark. His inheritance was far more reduced than his father's had been upon his succession and Frederick was forced to make concessions to the nobles and accept curbs on his power in order to maintain his crown's position. This changed with the defence of Copenhagen in the late 1650s against the Swedes, which so catapulted Freddy to the heights of popularity with the Danish populace that he became confident enough in his position to transform his reign into a more absolutist one. Complete with his absolutist ambitions, Frederick III also had commercial ambitions for Denmark, and one of these was to challenge the Anglo-Dutch monopoly on trade in the West Indies. The Danish West India Company was the result of this, and Frederick hoped that an alliance with the other struggling company in Britain would enable them both to take the Dutch down a peg together. Frederick didn't want war, what he wanted was a return on his investments and some good news where the expansion of Dutch commercial power was concerned. Despite Frederick's overt desire not to engage in a war with the Dutch after what had happened in the past when Denmark engaged in wars with its neighbours, tensions between Denmark and the Dutch did heat up when the Dutch captured and then in 1660 raised the Danes' last fortress, Fredericksburg, off the Gold Coast. Over the next few years, Frederick made appeals to the Dutch, but finally accepted another avenue in autumn 1663, when he appealed to Charles II directly for help in this regard. Frederick sent Charles essentially a laundry list of offences committed by the Dutch in West Africa, and reasoned that the Hague owed Denmark compensation for such wrongs, but that the Danes had yet to receive any. Charles then teamed up with Sir George Downing, the British ambassador to the Netherlands, to press the issue. Predictably, as both the Danish ambassador to London and the Danish ambassador to The Hague expected, the Dutch did nothing, arguing that such offences were the result of foreign commercial competition and that essentially the Danes, just like the British, were only complaining because they had played the game and lost. To this, the Danish ambassador to the Netherlands responded to Downing, thanking him for his efforts but noting... The talking would do no good nor obtain any satisfaction for what had passed, nor security for the future, unless attended with something that was real, and did bite. While Charles was out courting the Scandinavians, the Dutch had already concluded a far more effective defensive alliance with France. Charles II and Louis XIV, as cousins, were in regular contact, and since Charles's sister was married to Louis's brother, Philippe, letters sent between them shed further light on what was quite a close relationship. So what did Charles realistically have to fear from a Franco-Dutch alliance? In short, Charles wanted to be ready, to ensure that the Dutch could not pull either Sweden or Denmark towards its diplomatic orbit in the event of another Anglo-Dutch war. Charles accepted that if he straight up invaded the Netherlands and demonstrated British aggression, Louis would be bound by his alliance and his own personal honour to come to the aid of the Dutch. Because it was a defensive alliance, Charles knew that a Franco-Dutch invasion force was unlikely to appear in the Channel unless he provoked it. What he also appreciated was the fact that Denmark and Sweden both had reason to ally themselves with the Dutch in such an arrangement. The Franco-Dutch agreement had gotten Charles thinking of alternative possibilities in the international sphere. As Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, Charles's quintessential Prime Minister, devised a series of compromises with the Dutch. 
In September 1662, a trade deal was signed between the British and Dutch, which Clarendon hoped would be the beginning of a new era in Anglo-Dutch relations. Sir George Downing, Britain's anti-Dutch ambassador to the Netherlands, was not impressed and actually returned home for a whole year rather than subject himself to the Dutch any longer. But he was sent back the following year to defuse new tensions. This time, Downing had been briefed heavily by Clarendon as to the importance of coming up with a good deal that would improve upon the September 1662 agreement. The Dutch desperately wanted an end to the Navigation Act and for Britain to open it and its colonies up to freer trade. If this could be arranged, Clarendon understood, then tensions would almost vanish at home. At the same time, though, Clarendon also appreciated that free trade would enable the Dutch to mightily surpass London, even further than it already had. The Navigation Act was seen by Charles's court as providing a uniquely British check on Dutch designs, so rather than repeal it, Clarendon briefed Downing to relax it as far as he could, while still holding the cards. Sir George Downing had reason to be positive when he arrived in The Hague in September 1663. Johan de Witt, Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland and essentially the Prime Minister of the Netherlands for this time period, seemed far more accommodating, and he apologised for the Dutch failure to hand over the island of Pulau Run, one of the smallest islands of the Banda Islands, which are part of Indonesia. Pulau Run was a really important island because it had a great deal of important spices like nutmeg and mace, which for a time were exclusively to be found in the Banda Islands. The disagreements over the island of Pulau Run was one of many during this period between the Anglo-Dutch negotiators, but to its acknowledgement that the Dutch should have handed it over, as per the terms of the peace treaty that ended the First Anglo-Dutch War, was a cause for positivity in Sir George Downing's case. Downing soon got wind of why DeWitt was so eager to please him, though. The Dutch pensionary was thinking of the bigger picture and looking at France, the same power that the Dutch had a defensive alliance with. Only a few weeks before Downing had arrived, Louis had publicly laid claim to the Spanish Netherlands in the name of his wife, Maria Theresa, who was the daughter of Philip IV. As per the terms of their marriage, a large dowry was supposed to settle the issue of Maria Theresa inheriting anything. Philip had sought to ensure this. But the dowry was never fully paid, since this was Spain, and Louis thus felt compelled to press for an annulment, not of the marriage, but of the terms that bound him to hold back from laying claim to the Spanish Netherlands. All of these loopholes had been placed strategically in the Peace of the Pyrenees by Cardinal Mazarin, and though that great statesman had died in 1661, his legacy would be to hand Louis a convenient pretext for expanding French influence and borders. This was the crux of the situation facing Europe in the early 1660s, that when Philip IV died, Louis would move to claim his wife's inheritance. Of course, Louis wasn't doing this because he cared about his wife's possessions. He was doing this to expand his territory and, critically for the young king, he was doing it because the launching of a war and the potential conquering of the Spanish Netherlands would enable him to christen his youthful reign with helpful lashings of glory and valour on the battlefield. Louis was already showing signs of what was to come in his reign then, and the issue would indeed implode within a few years, But for now, Johan de Witt, as the de facto Prime Minister of the Netherlands, sought to prevent Louis from pushing the French border up against the Dutch. He hadn't much faith in the Spanish ability to resist, neither did Louis, and he foresaw the French rolling up the Spanish defences all the way to the Dutch border if they invaded. Thus, de Witt tried to get London on side and clue Sir George Downing into the wider implications of what was going on in Europe in the hope that Britain would be on side and help the Dutch by the time Louis launched his bid for ruling the Spanish Netherlands. Yet, Charles II was in no mood to either offend his cousin or play European games, at least not if those games favoured the Dutch. Already he had tiptoed around the fact that he had striven to end the Spanish-Portuguese War, 
This would have offended Louis, since he had aided the Portuguese in the past, but Louis also could have taken offence because Charles was reducing the burdens upon Spain, and thereby freeing Spain up and enabling them to commit to other ventures, such as the protection of the Spanish Netherlands, if Louis came knocking. Charles had reason to fear, envy, and admire Louis, as well as to wish to remain on his good side for purely strategic reasons. He had sold Dunkirk to France in October 1662 for 400 grand, in a bid to raise desperately needed cash, since Dunkirk was essentially a drain on his resources. And Louis could provide this cash in abundance, but the move was somewhat unpopular in London. Charles's relationship with Louis was a complex one. He didn't want to break with his cousin and sought to distance himself from any suggestions that Britain should ally itself against France. But at the same time, he couldn't ignore some glaring signals that Louis was up to something. Louis's claim on the Spanish Netherlands meant that war was bound to return to the continent soon, and the Earl of Clarendon had been of the opinion, since the claim was made, that Louis's France posed the greatest threat to London, not the Dutch. Thus Clarendon urged Charles to cease with his schemes for creating an anti-Dutch league from the Scandinavian powers, and use his resources and clout in Europe to side with the Dutch against the greater danger in France instead. This view had been greatly complicated, though, by the Dutch signing of a defensive pact with France in mid-1662. De Witt presented it, at the time, as a chance to achieve better levels of Dutch security, but Sir George Downing saw it as a spurning of the temporary olive branch that Clarendon had suggested. As per the terms of this treaty, as we saw, Louis would come to the aid of the Dutch if the Dutch were attacked. The diplomacy had thus become somewhat convoluted and Bismarckian by the time Johann de Witt met Sir George Downing a year later in September 1663 and told him that, despite this treaty with France, he was still worried about what the French would do. To George Downing, frustrated at the lack of progress despite the declared Dutch desire to reach a decision with London, de Witt seemed to him to be checking all the odds before making a move. The defensive treaty with France had undoubtedly been aimed at Britain, since it had been signed in mid-1662 when flare-ups in Africa were reaching their peak and war enthusiasm seemed on the rise in Britain. Now though, de Witt was claiming that he was more worried about his allies' intentions rather than his former enemies' actions abroad. De Witt hoped this would open the door to a British counter-treaty, or at least a secret counter-treaty, but George Downing waited for instructions from home. Charles had frequently marvelled at De Witt's ingenuity and tenacity, once calling him a professional calculator, who always sought to construct a backup plan and consider every alternative before moving, just like Charles liked to think he did himself. The defensive pact with France had been a stark reminder of the Dutch ability to shut Britain out, but these overtures seemed to suggest that an Anglo-Dutch détente was in the offing, to be aimed squarely at Louis. If Charles or Clarendon had hoped for an Anglo-Dutch détente, though, they were to be disappointed. Above all, the pressure came from men invested in recently created companies, such as the Royal African Company of Adventurers, a very important company for this war and these series of episodes, just so you know. The company was top-heavy with zealous Anglican royalists, determined to apply their principles of religious oppression and merchant expansion to foreign quarrels, particularly that of the Dutch. Coming under the consistent pressure of the African company lobby, Charles began to lose interest in a détente with the Dutch and hoped to improve relations with Louis and create his own fortunes in Scandinavia instead. In an effort to formulate a policy which would achieve such ends, Schoolcraft noted that the following occurred. In November 1663, the two kings, the Danish and the British, discussed the question of an offensive alliance against the United Provinces, but the King of Denmark favoured legislation against the commerce of Holland rather than war, because the late struggle with Sweden had so drained his treasury that he could hardly afford another conflict. An attack on the provinces, however, was nearest to his heart, and in that case he desired the King of England to become a guarantor of the Treaty of Copenhagen in 1660, 
so that Sweden would at least remain neutral, if indeed that power did not unite with England and Denmark to form a triple alliance. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's against the Dutch Republic. The Danish king, Frederick III, had good reason to suspect that Charles was seeking to craft some kind of coalition with Sweden against the Dutch. Ever since the African rivalry had heated up, anti-Dutch feeling in London had intensified, and with Sir George Downing on hand as Britain's anti-Dutch ambassador to the Dutch, any scheming against the United Provinces was made that much easier. In the meantime, Frederick III tried his hand again in settling Danish claims of compensation with the Dutch, but the esteemed Danish envoy returned home in March 1664 believing that such efforts on compensation with the Dutch were going to be fruitless. Under such circumstances, with Danish honour long past the point of being offended, Frederick wrote to Charles directly, asking him that if another commercial treaty between Britain and the Netherlands came up, Charles would not sign it until the Danes received redress. With Frederick's inferiority complex fueled, Charles sought to appeal to it further by sending an envoy extraordinaire to Copenhagen in June 1664, with the express aim of crafting an offensive Anglo-Danish alliance. Under the circumstances, Freddie could not bring himself to agree to it unless Swedish neutrality had been assured, as we saw before, since he feared a devastating attack from Sweden, no doubt orchestrated by the wily Dutch, if the Netherlands were suddenly threatened. It would only have made sense for the Dutch to pay off the mortal enemy of the Danes to attack them and take them out of the war, thereby evening the odds. Charles was not really interested in securing Swedish neutrality, though. He was far more ambitious than that in the diplomatic sphere. While an envoy extraordinaire had been sent to Copenhagen, another had secretly been sent to Stockholm where he was to test the waters for a triple alliance of Britain, Denmark and Sweden against the Dutch Republic. Though both envoys had sailed on the same vessel, they carried on paper different treaties. On paper, an envoy was to inquire about a Danish offensive alliance and Swedish neutrality, but in reality the envoy set for Sweden was to probe deeper and see how willing the post-war regency of Sweden would be to commit itself to another war. If not a war, then Charles hoped he could pry out of Stockholm an agreement to cease trading with the Dutch, in a bid to force Dutch ships off the Baltic Sea. If Charles could even diplomatically unite Scandinavia against the Dutch, then in a stroke the Netherlands would lose its prime source of revenue in Baltic trade, trade which would be replaced by British ships, through a special deal that would ensure commercial cooperation between Denmark and Sweden, and a reduced navigation act for both to incentivize them to trade more regularly with London and its far-off colonies. 
Charles's diplomacy in the first years of his restoration thus appears both underrated historically and geared towards a specific purpose, war with the Dutch. But why was Charles so motivated by the idea of waging war against the Dutch again? Did he not see the Dutch as a potential ally against the growing power of France, or as a bulwark against Protestant accusations against him and his reign at home, that he had gone soft on Catholics and was a closet one himself? Charles saw the world differently to the traditional historical picture of boogeyman Louis XIV. To him, the world was divided into economic blocks, and risks to seize these blocks should only be taken if one is fairly certain of victory. There was little point in attacking the French, because in Charles's mind they did not yet jeopardise Britain's expansion across the world in the same way that the Dutch did. The Dutch were the only ones that could produce the kind of naval muscle necessary to compete with Britain. But Charles's preparation of a diplomatic web around the Netherlands should not be mistaken for a gradually progressing plan towards war with that republic. Charles wanted to ensure that Britain was insulated against any Dutch intrigues in Scandinavia, since he understood that France was tied up already, but this didn't mean that he was following a logical plan and timeline which would eventually result in a second Anglo-Dutch war. Convinced as he had been for the necessity of being prepared for a war when it came, Charles II in 1664 had yet to be persuaded to look for war. It is worth noting that Charles's striking ambitions with regard to Scandinavian alliances could be seen as a manifestation of his perception that the Dutch would only answer to force, and that, if offences like those in West Africa were to be a regularity, perhaps a heavier hand or some gunboat diplomacy was needed to show the Dutch that London was not content to be pushed around. Charles's diplomacy was thus not necessarily geared towards war, but geared towards ensuring that Britain had a better hand to play, and could pressure the Dutch more effectively. Great consequences were predicted for the Dutch in the event that a war was waged again. Last time only Oliver Cromwell himself had halted the collapse of the Republic, so the story went. And now, with certainly an absence of Cromwell, but no absence of malice or rivalry, the possibilities for a simultaneous Dutch defeat and British resurgence seemed boundless. Back to Charles's seemingly impeccable diplomatic efforts, though. Henry Schoolcraft noted that It is possible, however, that Charles and his advisers did not fully understand the difficulty of uniting Denmark and Sweden. In reference to the lack of consideration for the past that Charles's diplomats seemed to hold, as well as the surprise with which they greeted what they saw as excessive Danish demands. These Danish demands, which included Frederick III's provision that Denmark be secured from the invasion of the Swedes, and to have restored the freedom of imposing customs in Norway and in the Sound, which were so obtained before 1645, if His Majesty should bring the Hollander to reason. The price of bringing the Hollander to reason then seemed quite steep, since it could result in a British war against Sweden, something Charles had not altogether accounted for. This was why an envoy was en route to Stockholm, in an attempt to wrap up Sweden against any potential conflict with its old foe. But while these negotiations went on, the Anglo-Dutch talks were continually buoyed by reports to them, in autumn 1664, that war between Britain and the Netherlands was inevitable, despite Charles's relative antipathy. This seemed to provide an impetus to arrive at a resolution, and by November 1664, Charles had got the offensive alliance with the Danes that he desired. Schoolcraft noted that Frederick of Denmark demanded and received the following terms under which the war would be conducted against the Dutch. He agreed to close his ports to Dutch shipping, to recall Danish sailors from Dutch service, and to enter the struggle against Holland. The war on his part, however, was to be confined to an attack on Dutch commerce on the coast of Norway, and in the Sound, provided the King of England sent 12 men of war to be commanded by him to make this attack effective. The protocol also required Charles to give him a subsidy at the end of the war, to enable him to defend himself in case the Hollander fell upon them, 
and not to make any treaty with the Dutch provinces without including the whole interest of the King of Denmark. The diplomatic victory of Charles II was significant, but it was not yet total. A massive complication began to emerge in Charles's plan, as both Charles and Frederick sought to settle their offensive alliance. This complication was found in the British desire to guarantee the Treaty of Copenhagen from 1660, which was a peace treaty that had ended the war between Sweden and Denmark and granted the former three critical provinces, which together enabled Swedish dominion over the Sound. If you remember from a little earlier on, one of Frederick's demands for an alliance and commercial treaty to be used against the Dutch was that Danish control over the tolls of the Sound would revert to the state that they had been in 1645. This demand, just to remind us, to have restored the freedom of imposing customs in Norway and in the Sound, which were so obtained before 1645, in the Danish diplomat's own words, meant that the Treaty of Copenhagen that Britain wanted to guarantee would be incompatible with this. If reverting to the state of affairs of 1645 was what Frederick III wanted, then a guarantee of a treaty signed in the aftermath of a disastrous war against Sweden in 1660, in which Denmark lost essentially all of its economic privileges over the Sound, was never going to be compatible. The reason why Charles had not worried too much about the Danes wanting to cast the Treaty of Copenhagen aside in the past was because a special Danish envoy tasked with improving the Anglo-Dutch alliance in the early days had said that it wouldn't be much trouble. Hannibal Sehested, a veteran Danish diplomat and architect of the 1660 Treaty of Copenhagen, which did save Danish sovereignty, had been that special Danish envoy, but by late 1664 in the Danish court, everything seemed to have changed. In early October 1664, Britain's envoy to Denmark wrote to Britain's envoy in Sweden to let him know that Frederick wanted the three provinces which had straddled the Sound and which Sweden now possessed back in Danish hands. Of course he did. If Frederick didn't agree to guarantee the Treaty of Copenhagen, then Britain's envoy to Sweden knew that none of the three powers were ever going to be on the same page. Freddie was convinced that clawing the provinces back was his mission and that it would salvage Denmark's position as beholden to Sweden. No one in Charles' diplomatic corps were interested in the prospect of returning the provinces to Denmark, though, since they knew that Sweden wouldn't agree to it, and that another war would result. Freddie acknowledged that conflict may ensue in the future, but made plain his belief to the British envoy that now was the best opportunity to take the provinces back, since Sweden was under a regency and lacked a strong leadership. In addition, Britain would guarantee the transfer and Sweden was in no position to take Britain on at this point, having only emerged from five years of excessive war. Charles would have been surely shocked at Frederick's sudden ambitious turnaround. He seemed to have, by his own ambitions, created a monster in the Danish king. Frederick claimed that supporting Denmark's claim to the lost provinces that had been lost in an awful war with Sweden was the true price for an offensive alliance with Britain on top of the aforementioned terms, and British envoys in Denmark and Sweden agreed to meet one another halfway to see if some kind of triple alliance could not yet be salvaged rather than continue to ping letters back and forth. Why were these diplomats willing to invest so much of their efforts in an alliance with a reluctant Sweden and second-rate power in Denmark? Especially in the case of the latter, it would seem that Britain surely had far better options for allies should war break out. Denmark had not been of consequence in the grand scheme of great powers since the 1620s, so was Charles wasting his time by banking so heavily on their assistance? What could the Danes realistically do in a war against the Dutch anyway? when they did not have the power or even possess the land to close off the sound to Dutch shipping. Two important facts from the era shed light on why Charles pushed so hard for a Danish offensive alliance. The first was that a Danish agreement, which ironed out the potential for conflict with Sweden, meant that Britain could co-opt the support of both Sweden and Denmark as allies. If London could be the mediator, in other words, and resolve the Danish-Swedish disputes, the creation of a triple alliance would be that much easier. 
Thus, it is better to see the efforts made in Denmark not necessarily being made solely in the interest of a Danish alliance, but for the sake of involving both Scandinavian powers. If Charles could appease Denmark, which he thought he could do by guaranteeing the Treaty of Copenhagen, then he could probably appease Sweden as well. It was true that Charles underestimated the hostility between Dane and Swede, but despite this, a strong enough incentive from London could tip the diplomatic balance towards cooperation. Frederick's demands for the three provinces back threw a wrench in the works for sure, but British envoys weren't meeting together at a secret location because they wanted to salvage a Danish alliance from this new development. They were meeting because it was worth seeing how far Denmark could be accommodated, rather than simply giving up on the idea of a triple alliance involving all of Scandinavia. The second reason why Charles seemed so determined to pursue the Danes, or indeed the whole idea of an offensive triple alliance, can be found in the other significant diplomatic fact of the day. The short explanation was that Charles wished to ally with the Scandinavian powers because if he didn't, he believed that the Dutch would do so instead. The longer explanation reveals that powers like the Danes were so tied to other powers in complicated and conflicting alliance agreements that carving out a dual alliance wouldn't cut it. If Charles crafted an offensive alliance with Denmark alone, the possible complications that would arise from all of Denmark's other agreements, many of which were not fully known to British envoys since they were secret, would create so many headaches that it would scarcely be worth it. A triple alliance held more weight, because whatever the complications it caused, a triple alliance, if it held together, possessed greater security in numbers. Charles, it is worth noting, had not anticipated Frederick III of Denmark's demands to reclaim his lost provinces, but just as Freddie's ambitions had grown, and just as he had tried to aim as high as possible in the diplomatic spheres, so had Charles. When he began his new reign in 1660, a defensive alliance with the Danes had satisfied him, but now he wanted only an offensive alliance that he could effectively direct against the Netherlands, even if he had to pay a high price for it such as war with Sweden. Surrounding the Dutch with terrible odds, Charles reasoned, was worth the price of a few disgruntled Danes or Swedes, especially if he could iron out their conflicts and bring them over to Britain's orbit. Now it merely remained to be seen in late 1664 if his envoys could work out a magic solution to the Danish-Swedish-British problem. Britain's envoy to Sweden was George Coventry, the third Baron of Coventry and a renowned English nobleman and diplomat by 1664. His counterpart in Denmark was William Talbot, the Earl of Talbot and an equally important British statesman in his own right. Both men had been tasked with creating and then maintaining the Triple Alliance against the Dutch that Charles had coveted, but Frederick's revelation that he did not want the Treaty of Copenhagen to be guaranteed and instead wanted to tear it up and get his old provinces back provided both men with a problem. Talbot in Denmark understood that he needed help from his Swedish counterpart if he was to judge for himself whether the situation could indeed be saved and so he arranged with Coventry to meet him halfway, as we saw. The Baron of Coventry in Sweden had initially been open to meeting Talbot because he was having trouble getting the Swedes to listen to him in Stockholm at all, as he didn't have the necessary powers or permission to act in Britain's name yet, which was a strange oversight that was often used by diplomats of the era as an excuse to dally and delay signing treaties that they had no intention of signing, but in this case, the Baron Coventry's shortcomings seemed to have been a genuine mistake. Coventry figured that since he wasn't getting anywhere with the Swedes anyway, he may as well meet Talbot and help him figure out his problems with the Danes. Unfortunately for Talbot, travelling from Denmark, just as he left for the arranged rendezvous point 200 miles from Copenhagen, permission for plenary powers came through for Coventry in Stockholm. Now that Coventry was authorised to speak with the full representation of Britain behind him, the Swedes were more willing to speak to him and the two parties got on like a house on fire. This development prompted Coventry to send a hurried letter to Talbot, 
informing him that if he left Sweden, negotiations would suffer, so he planned on staying instead to further Charles's interests. I'm very sorry, I hope you haven't left Denmark and aren't knee-deep in the snow yet. This was all well and good, but Talbot never got the message, and he was knee-deep in snow. Despite the fact that Coventry told the Earl of Clarendon, remember, Britain's de facto Prime Minister, sorry about all these names, about the development as well, Clarendon never saw fit to inform poor Talbot at all. So poor Talbot traversed the winter snow and ice for 200 miles, only to wait for a week in vain for Coventry, only to then travel back 200 miles, bitterly no doubt, to Copenhagen. This trivial example of diplomats' wires getting crossed appears unimportant in the grand scheme of things, and you might be wondering why I brought it up at all. But according to Schoolcraft, our expert on Anglo-Scandinavian relations in the period, it was symptomatic of the kind of haphazard diplomatic service that was run from London at the time. As Schoolcraft noted, the whole mess-up augured ill for the future of English diplomacy. Despite the ill omens, a defensive alliance with sweeping applications was signed between Britain and Sweden on the 1st of March 1665. Material terms of what was named the Treaty of Stockholm aside, which was given a term of 10 years, the real thing to behold from the negotiations of Coventry with his Swedish friends were the diplomatic requirements now placed on Charles II's kingdom. Critically for Denmark's interest, Coventry gave his consent for Charles II, in the words of Schoolcraft, declare war on either Scandinavian power in the case of an infringement of the Treaty of Copenhagen. The new treaty between Sweden and Britain also told a tale of subtle Swedish resentments against the one power that sought to actively halt their expansion in the years before, the Dutch Schoolcraft reveals how included in the treaty between Sweden and Britain was a secret article provided for the annulling of the elucidations at Elbing, which were part of the Treaty of Elsinore between Sweden and the United Provinces in 1659. For the sake of a bit of background, the Treaty of Elsinore had been signed after the Dutch intervention against Sweden during the 1658 Battle of the Sound, while the Swedes threatened to overwhelm Copenhagen and finished Denmark off as a sovereign power for good. Within that Dutch-Swedish Treaty of 1659, the Swedes had agreed to recognise the Dutch as a most favoured nation, where trade and commerce in the Baltic was concerned, and they committed themselves to not threaten Dutch interests in the region again. The treaty had been made while Sweden was in something of a tight spot, but the Regency now saw its opportunity for a sort of revenge. The Swedes predicted that annulling the treaty would provoke war between Dutch and Swedish empires, since the Dutch would feel their interests threatened and need to defend them against Swedish encroachment. So the following was also included in the Anglo-Swedish alliance. If the Dutch states-general agreed to their abrogation, Charles was not to appear in the matter, but if they opposed it, Charles engaged to make war on any power except France, which united with the provinces against an annulment. Charles engaged to make war on any power except France, which united with the Dutch provinces against an annulment, and he promised to oppose France diplomatically. Such immensely heavy commitments by Coventry and Sweden to make Britain and Sweden allies demonstrated that Denmark's, or at least Frederick's, ambitions had been left in the dust. Britain couldn't very well guarantee the Treaty of Copenhagen with Sweden on pain of declaring war on whoever broke it, while getting Frederick his lost provinces back at the same time. Frederick was thus not going to be happy if he found out what the British and Swedes had been doing together. So, as Talbot returned to Denmark, Clarendon pinged him a letter from London urging him to be considerate and conscientious with the Danes, with the aim of persuading Frederick III to see sense. If only Frederick could be made to agree to the guarantee of the Treaty of Copenhagen and be made to see that such a guarantee would insulate Denmark within a powerful offensive triple alliance against Denmark's commercial rival with possible benefits to come down the line, dear Freddy, then Charles's much-desired triple alliance would surely be soon in coming. 
When Talbot arrived back in Copenhagen after his pointless trip to meet Coventry halfway, though, there was a problem. Something had gotten to Copenhagen first, but it wasn't a rival diplomat, it was a letter. Coventry had apparently informed the Danish diplomat resident in Stockholm about the terms of the Anglo-Swedish alliance, and had advised him to persuade his sovereign to accept a guarantee of the Treaty of Copenhagen to transform the dual alliance into a triple one. Perhaps the Baron of Coventry believed that he was laying the groundwork for Talbot, but his actions massively backfired. The bewildered Danish envoy that Coventry had spoken to in Sweden knew that no knowledge of the Anglo-Swedish alliance or even of the British ambition for such an alliance existed in Copenhagen, and he was determined to clue his masters in back in Copenhagen as to what was going down rather than persuade them to follow a set course. By the time Talbot arrived in the Danish capital then, he was confronted with the spectacle of Frederick III having discovered that the entire series of overtures to he and his kingdom had been employed to craft a triple alliance, and that Britain had just concluded a significant part of that alliance with his worst enemy. All that London required now, a furious Freddy understood, was his acceptance of the unacceptable Treaty of Copenhagen, which had stripped Denmark of her beloved critical three provinces and paralysed her money-making ability in the process. Talbot recalled to Clarendon when he met him. I never saw him more disquieted. An almost hilarious understatement of the Danish king, who no doubt shook with rage having learned that Charles had sought to manipulate him and use him for his own ends from the very beginning. How was Talbot to salvage the situation now? In short, he provided the Danish king with information from London that he wanted to see. A guarantee of the Treaty of Copenhagen did not have to mean that Britain wished to maintain the separation of Denmark from its beloved three provinces. What it merely meant, the desperate Talbot assured him, was that London wanted to guarantee peace between Sweden and Denmark. It was in all probability through this perverted interpretation of the guarantee, Schoolcraft noted, just the reverse of the guarantee given to the Swedish regents, that Talbot secured the consent of Frederick III. Perhaps King Frederick of Denmark was engaging in some wishful thinking. On the other hand, perhaps he didn't believe that Britain would have the neck to base a triple alliance on two different lies to each of the parties. No truly reliable alliance between England and the Northern Powers could be created by guaranteeing to one the possession of conquered provinces and to the other a peace with the hope of the reconquest of the same provinces, in the words of Schoolcraft. Freddie may have been wiser than London thought, for though he imposed a blanket ban on Danes serving in Dutch vessels in early March 1665, he did refrain nonetheless from committing himself to an offensive alliance, unless he was certain that Sweden had also committed to it, or, in Frederick's own words, I am at a dead stay as to the main of my business, till I hear what Mr. Coventry doth in Sweden, for they can no wise think it safe to embark upon a new venture and leave Sweden loose. Just around that time, Frederick of Denmark was informed of the aforementioned defensive alliance of the 1st of March 1665 between Britain and Sweden, and his fears then appeared unfounded. Thus, although in Schoolcraft's mind, the contradictory guarantees contained the germs of future discord, a triple offensive alliance between Swede, Dane and Brit appeared destined to go ahead, somehow. With such an agreement, Charles could ensure Britain against any potential threats, close the Baltic to Dutch shipping, and ensure an even more total victory against the Dutch than previously believed possible. By spring 1665, though, another European statesman was on the case. This was Holland's grand pensionary, Johann de Witt. Contrary to the wishes of Charles II's diplomats, he had been made aware of the British negotiations in Copenhagen and Stockholm. Rather than make the revelations public, De Witt determined to blow down Charles's meticulously and confusingly stacked house of cards 
with sheer cunning and some Bismarckian-esque diplomacy of his own. If a second war between the Netherlands and Britain was inevitable, DeWitt mused, he was certainly about to do all in his power to make sure that Britain was as isolated and alone as possible. As far as he was concerned, the shaky Triple Alliance was on borrowed time. The countdown to war had begun. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.